directly with the correct amount. D20 Radio, where gamers roll. www.d20radio.com For the day, on the battlefield, valor is the lifeblood of victory. Road Warriors, and welcome to episode 76 of the Grimdark Podcast. This is James. And this is Mike. If you're joining us for the first time, we're a podcast devoted to role-playing in the 41st millennium, using the gaming systems created by Fantasy Flight Games. Each episode we cover a, a different gaming system, and today we'll be going to be talking about Dark Heresy 2nd Edition. Uh, before we do that, let's have a quick chat about uh, gaming in the last fortnight. It has not been a lot, because I have had some more travel and have work commitments, you had a lot of... Uh, work commitments. I think, really, it's been zero. For you. It's been zero for you. I, I have a life outside of you. Uh, <laughs> if you can call it a life. Without and... me, is a desolate <laughs> wasteland. I actually... Uh, there was a small group from the last convention we went to that was keen to uh, have a bit more of a go of the Star Wars role... Uh, sorry, Star Wars FFG system. Yep. And so I actually ran a game via Roll20... Um, in the past week that was you know for I mean I think a lot of the players have never played the system before or played it like once yeah. uh, and there were some other things because I with the help of the guys from uh, the D20 Radio Network and particularly the, the hosts of Order 66 podcast I got the API going for uh, the Star Wars engine in Roll20 so it actually uses the different coloured dice and it automatically cancels down and shows you what your result is yeah. but for some reason there was a bug in the API where every time someone rolled it would roll twice and generate two different results. Uh, and we, I couldn't stop it happening, and I googled it, and people sort of say, yeah, it does that sometimes, it should go away. Uh, but it meant for the whole session, I have to keep looking at the two dice rolls and saying, okay, well, the first one that rolls is the one that applies, you know. So it was just That's a bit fair. of a hassle. And it was also a hassle because there's a group mechanic to be spent destiny points. Every time you spent one, it would spend two. So I had to manually change back the, the, the number each time. Plus, every time people roll initiative, it generated twice as many initiative slots and... Anyway, <laughs> it was just a hassle, but uh, it, it, the players had a good time, which okay. is what's important anyway. And uh, I don't know, I think it's something we'll, uh, we'll probably do again as well. So that was a, a good start, I guess, to something relatively new. Uh, also, I mentioned, remember we mentioned Darren's plans to do a D&D session at some point in the future. He's also keen to try out Roll20 at some point. But once again, it comes down to how organized he is, which is, spoiler alert, not very so we'll see what happens okay uh, okay we'll keep so, you posted in 2020 when it comes about. that's it yeah yeah oh, i need to quickly throw in a quick caveat for those who are listening to us on on schedule as such like when it actually happens mike we need to agree up front no political discussion this this podcast episode, i right? would just like to point out that he's not the god emperor because the god <laughs> emperor obviously has to be english so. <laughs> there are a lot of people just to answer that a, meme a, a, a lot of my 40k friends have posted lots of pictures of the god emperor yeah. On, the, on their Facebook walls yeah, as well. It, so. it, it, it's, yeah, it's an old meme from, from when he first started running. Okay, but no we can all agree, it's not him. Okay, that, that's as political as we'll get tonight anyway. Yeah. So, okay. Uh, we might talk about 40k politics, though. In fact, we are, in a way, talking about 40k politics in one of our sections. Yes. So, getting on to what will be in tonight's show. Uh, it is Dark Heresy, as mentioned before. We'll do a probably relatively short news section. Uh, then we're going to be talking about vehicles and mounts in Dark Heresy 2nd Edition. Uh, we're going to be covering the Ace Roll. 
Uh, we'll do our plot hooks and war gear section. Uh, I'm going to review a 40k graphic novel, uh, which is uh, Warhammer 40,000 Exterminatus, uh, because I think it's it's fitting for the Dark Heresy setting for a couple of reasons. Uh, and then I want to start a new series of segments on the different factions within the Inquisition. And tonight we're going to be starting with the Thorians, talking a bit about them, and not just about what they believe, but also how to, I guess, run a Thorian group or Thorian Inquisitor in your Thorium campaign. Thorium campaign or Thorium antagonist. Exactly right, yes. Uh, then we'll do our regular community section and finish the show off. So it might be a bit of a shorter one tonight. No promises. We'll see how we go. But uh, let's get straight into it. Yep. Command acknowledged. Accessing Imperial Archives. All right, so not a lot of news today. Uh, nothing from FFG, obviously, so we'll, we'll skip over that part. But getting on to Games Workshop. Uh, so we're, first off, we've seen The Burning of Prospero has been released yep. uh, now, so that, that was a good one. I haven't had a chance to pick it up yet. Yep. Uh, but what is more exciting to me is there are now rumours going around that when they release 8th edition, there will be a box set as it normally is, and that the box set will be Sisters of Battle versus some Xenos. Yeah, not decided what yet. Um, yeah, there's been lots of rumours about the Plastic Sisters of Battle for a few months, but yeah. it's looking much stronger now. Yeah, that, 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 I'm more almost certain. More... To, yeah, I'm almost certain to buy. I, I, I really hope. I'd be really happy if it was like Eldar or Dark Eldar. I'm not sure, given that the last box set they did was Harlequins versus Space Marines. I, but, I think Sisters of Battle versus Dark Eldar that'd be a good. I think it would be a perfect one. That'd but that'd I, be I'd be a just, good one. Yeah, I'd more think. I think they might do something Battle like Battle of the Toughness Threes. <laughs> That's it. Well, they haven't done Orcs for a while. Yeah. They've never done Tau as part of a starter set. Yeah. Uh, and, and it's been said, it, the, the rumor I read was Sisters of Battle versus a Xenotype. So not versus Chaos, not versus any, some other Imperial Force. Yeah, they've done. I, I suppose it could be that they, they, they could make use of all those Gene Stealer cults they've done recently. Have Sisters of Battle versus Gene Stealer cults. Yeah, yeah. Certainly a possibility as well. But um, yeah, no, I'm looking forward to that one. I definitely like to, to pick that one up when it comes out. Yeah. Uh, I also see that uh, we mentioned in the last episode Space Hulk Deathwing yeah. uh, was slated for a November release. It's now been given a December 9th release. So the date's locked in, but it's not in November, it's now in December. Uh, that being said, if you pre order on Steam, I think it's 39 US dollars. Uh, you can also sign up to be a beta tester. And you may get invited to take part in some beta testing in the you know sort of final weeks before the actual release. So I have bought the game and I have signed up. Whether or not I have actually received a beta test invitation, I could not say due to NDA. Uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm keen to see how that game turns out when it does come out. Actually, the other thing I'll, I'll say on the Games Workshop news, and it's not really Games Workshop news, but I saw a number of my friends who are 40K fans posted a link to a um, Imga uh, post this week. Did you see this one about the... Cheat the two cheese monkeys no. competing. Okay, so it was basically like uh, the, the, it was posted as like you know uh, cheese monkey defeated with anti cheese move that sort of stuff. You know, so the story goes that it was at a forty k tournament and there was one player there who was notorious for starting the game with all of his forces in reserve. So he de- so he would deploy no forces during the initial deployment. Now that rule in, in itself, like I, I, that's one I've looked at in the past. I thought would, would it be worthwhile doing a um, an all your force in reserve starting game. And I think that the issue there would be that, because uh, I'm thinking about a couple of editions, but in a couple of editions ago when I used to play, you couldn't roll for reinforcements until the second turn, yeah. which would mean that your opponent would automatically control the board at the end of the first turn. Yeah. Uh, but in this case, apparently it was legal for him to base, he had figures that could be bought on uh, in the first turn of the game. I think primarily bikes as such. 
And so what he would do is wait for his opponent to set up, and then he would uh, deploy all his forces in the first turn and like do like a sort of strategically placed based on where the enemies were, and then do a sort of blitzkrieg action. Yeah, uh, and it was you know a lot of players complained that it was not in the sort of spirit of the game, but it was all within the rules. Of Tournament such. plays never within the, the spirit, spirit of the, of the game, game. Yeah. So anyway, in this particular case, what happened was his opponent uh, said. So you know they, they they got to play. His opponent was playing Space Marines. I don't remember what army he was playing. There was in the picture that was taken. There were Tau. Um, there was a box for the Tau figures, so it might have been his Tau army. I'm not sure. It could have been the army for the next table. But anyway, so the he said, okay, well I'm deploying nothing, so you go ahead and deploy all your forces. Now, the, uh, the Marine player had taken his, an entire army of scouts uh, and taken them with, with the deep strike te- you know, traits. They could actually they could deploy anywhere on the board, provided they weren't within a certain distance of the, an enemy. But there's no enemies. They could deploy anywhere on the board. So he lined them all up in you know, the absolute, absolute maximum uh, uh, cohesion. Around the edge of the board. Around the edge of the board, exactly right. So that when the game started and he went for his reinforcements he couldn't deploy anything because there was no legal place to deploy to so the player won so you know classic example of using cheese to defeat the cheese monkey yes yeah I mean and and the photograph is great because it's sort of got like the the, the the player that got screwed furiously going through books with the tournament organiser while the player that won just like sitting there with this massive grin on his face so <laughs> so a bit, a bit of comeuppance there for, for that sort of thing but uh, yeah, I thought that was a funny story I, I, it may have been an old one I'm not sure but yeah he did the rounds of my friend's Facebook walls this week anyway um, on to Eternal Crusade I have not had a chance to actually uh, get that much play in in the last fortnight because of my other commitments uh, the one thing I'll note is that there was a state of the game interview done by MMO Huts with uh, one of the developers Nathan Richardson and uh, it probably wasn't the most nice read for the game developers because it pretty much said that the game is released now and it's basically a lobby shooter. But here are all the promises from the developers about all that's coming. You know, here's, you know, we've got guild support coming. We've got open map coming. We've got you know uh, campaign objectives coming. Haven't really got any dates to tell you, but it's all coming. It's not just a lobby shooter. It's an MMO. You know, and um, yeah, I don't know if it's just the way the article was written, but it really, it, it sort of, I think, in many ways, mocked the game for, you know, all this. Yeah, it will come at some point in the future. Yeah, but, the fact that it doesn't feel like a finished product. Well, I mean, look, if you tell me this was a this was a finished finished lobby shooter, I'd say yeah, it's a finished lobby uh, lobby shooter. It's fun. The graphics are there's no more glitches anymore. Yeah, uh, but uh, it's not what it was originally purported to be. Yeah. Um, not what I paid the two hundred and something dollars to be a founding member of, but I mean that's that's right. I mean it's it's I, I enjoy the game as it is, uh, but I, I'm certainly looking forward to those things in the future. Uh, but I don't know if they're now that they're officially released as such. I don't know if they're being called out by the media as you know a bit of BS. I'm not sure, uh, but it's just, it was an interesting read anyway. I, I should probably put a link into the uh, the show notes as well. Okay. Uh, but that's really it for the news. Not much at all uh, this yeah. this fortnight, but. Uh, been pretty quiet. The only thing I can think of is um, that the Forge World Open Day. Oh yeah, yep. Yeah. And they showed off a bunch of pretty new models, and that's it, really. Yeah, I mean, yeah. some of it looks really nice, but yeah, it's all stuff we've been expecting them to release for a while now. So yeah, completely unrelated to 40k. But my big thing this fortnight was in uh, Seven Day, which, given that you never played the Mass Effect games, I bought you for your birthday many years ago. Probably means very little to you, but it's a, it's a big day. In, in the Mass Effect calendar as such and it had all the reveals for Andromeda which is coming out next year but uh, yeah, that, that, I, I spent a lot of time on Reddit 
those, that couple of days surrounding November 7th to sort of see all the, the stuff coming out and all the new trailers and that sort of stuff. I'm very excited about that. You're looking forward to being able to three, see three more different coloured explosions at the end? <laughs> we'll see what happens, shall we? You know, yeah, okay. the, the, Casey Hudson is no longer involved with the project, so hopefully... Uh, <laughs> That uh, will, will, will be beneficial towards the outcome of the game. Okay. But uh, the other thing I was mentioned too is today I watched that um, the trailer for the new Lupuson film, uh, which is uh, Valerian, the City of Many Planets, something like that it's called, some something odd name. But it's sort of uh, the critics are sort of touting it as Fifth Element meets Star Wars. Yeah, uh, and, and there are some, yeah, there are some visuals in there that would go quite well for 40k almost. I think you know. So uh, I'm not going to say it's a 40k film, but just in the trailer, there's a couple of you know, I guess, Megopolis-style uh, images that, you know, would, would consider Imperial World, potentially. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, that looks like a, that looks like a lot of fun, actually. For I mean, I've always liked Luke Besson films. Yeah, he's always done a good job. Fifth Element is definitely worth watching. Yeah, that's it. So, um, okay. All right, all right, I'll see. I, before you say that, I was not a fan of Lucy. Lu- Lucy, I enjoyed it all the way until the end, and then you ruined, it for, ruined the film for me. Maybe I'm just not cerebral <laughs> enough to get it. That, that's so. one where she takes the smart drug, isn't that's it? That's right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> She's garbage. Okay, okay, there we go, so. Carry on. <laughs> Alright, let's keep going. Knowledge is power. Hide it well. Okay, it's time to talk Dark Heresy Second Edition system. And I guess there's not, there's not a lot of system in this particular part. We'll, we'll go through what's there. And, and I guess, in some ways, I sort of feel this, this section is, is maybe lacking a little bit. Uh, and this is the rules for vehicles and mounts in, in Dark Heresy Second Edition, because... You look back to Dark Heresy First Edition. Uh, they they brought out the rules for vehicles while it was still Black Library or Black Industries. It was a downloadable web supplement, and it, it really felt like it was tacked onto the game. Like sometimes with those web supplements, you sort of say, "Okay, well, there obviously wasn't enough room in the book, so they must have just you know hired this off as a supplement." But I don't know it, it almost felt like it didn't quite gel connect correctly. No, the piece it didn't meet didn't. up. But yeah, again with the original. Dark Heresy, the entire psychic system felt that way as well. So. Okay, that's true. And that was in the main book as well. Yeah. Uh, but uh, here, the, the vehicle stuff is a little bit different, but it, it does feel like it, it doesn't blend seamlessly with the game. And that may be the nature of the way the game is, but let, let's talk to that now. So first off, uh, vehicles and mounts are, realistically speaking, covered under the same basic system. But effectively, a mount has a regular stat block, yeah, so it has strength and toughness and agility, etc. And a non-living vehicle has a whole bunch of different traits, effectively. Yeah. Uh, but they, they do share some traits. There are some traits that a, that a mount gets that a, that a normal vehicle has. Uh, so vehicles are broken down into some basic categories. Uh, so first off, you've got tracked vehicles. So this would pretty much cover your tanks. I'd say it would also cover things like half-tracks uh, because, I mean, the, the whole point of tracked vehicles in warfare is to be able to negotiate otherwise very difficult terrain because, you know, a, a simple, a, as soon as people started using vehicles in warfare, people started using mechanisms to deny vehicles. Yeah. Um, their mobility as such. Yeah, and it, speed maneuverability and extra reliability and durability. That's it. Yeah, plus, I mean, tracks allow you to carry a lot more weight because you're not subject to simple things like, you know, air pressure and tyres, so yeah. therefore you can you can move a lot more bulk using a lot less energy as such. Yeah, uh, and ground pressure, you know. You mount a thousand ton tank on, on two little wheels, it's just going to punch straight through the floor and not go anywhere. Yes. Did you, did you hear, on the side, did you hear of the rat, the rat tank? 
Yeah. Oh. Okay, so um, towards the end of the Second World War, because obviously um, there was a lot of tanks produced in Germany, and I guess the sort of the the pinnacle of that point was the the King Tiger, or the, King Tiger. The, yeah, the, the Tiger II, uh, which was you know one of the largest you know, sort of armored fighting vehicles made up until that point. And there are a number of designs that the Germans also, um, I guess, put down for even larger tanks. Uh, and the largest one, I think, was called the Rack Tank, R-A-T-T-E. And this was like a... It was almost like an armoured personnel carrier in that it actually had like a loading bay in the back where you know, sort of bike scouts could be deployed from it, had multiple turrets on it as such. You know, it was, you look at it, if you just Google Rack Tank R-A-T-T-E, you'll see these ridiculous pictures. But the funny thing was that the reason that it never really got off the ground is because they worked out it would weigh so much that any infrastructure it used to get around, like roads, would be destroyed by its passage. Yeah. You know, so... <laughs> yeah, the only place you could use it is on a reinforced runway. <laughs> Not particularly useful. In which case, if it's stuck there, you might as well just put gun emplacements there, pretty much. Exactly, yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, but I mean, they, they did have this whole concept of the, the super tank or the super heavy, if you want to use a 40k term as such, you know. Yeah. Um, but yeah, really funny. So I'll show you in the break the, the picture of this tank as well. Uh, okay, so that's track vehicles. Obviously, we've got wheeled vehicles. This is the most common form of uh, of, of transportation being uh, bikes, cars, um, multi-wheel vehicles as well, anything like that. Wagons. Wagons, exactly. Um, rickshaw. Yeah? yeah? Yeah. Rickshaw, okay. I'm pretty sure rickshaws are big in 40k. That's it, yeah, yeah. I'm a tut-tuts. Yeah, that's it, <laughs> yeah. Tuk-tuk, sorry. That's it. Um, okay, so next one is skimmers. And skimmers pretty much refers to hovercraft. Uh, now, this is one of the common arguments you get when you start talking about forty. So, talking about hovercraft in any type of role-playing games is: Are hovercraft a ground effect vehicle or not? So, you know, like I mean, let's go back to I think that was the twentieth Bond film, uh, which is the one I actually got the privilege to work on. Had the opening scene oh, where... with, with the hovercrafts over the minefields. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah, and, and in actuality, the downward pressure. Yeah, re- does... real hovercrafts do have a ground effect. And, and, you know, quite easy enough to stop an anti-personnel mine. But would you say, for example, in the 40k world, what is the hover technology? Well, because obviously it, LR jet bikes are different from... It, it depends on the on the vehicle. Some, I think, land speeders and the marine craft are anti-grav vehicles. Yeah. So with anti-grav technology, there should be no ground effect. But something like a hovercraft, yeah. there should be, yeah. Because an interesting point, I'll, I'll, I'm, I'm going to refer back to the Ultramarines movie here, is if you if you watch the land speeder of the Ultramarines movie, it has a heat haze underneath the vehicle in in the space between the vehicle and the and the ground as well. But even when it's stopped, it's it hovers there even once the yeah, the, the yeah, spoiler the driver and the and the, the co-pilot are killed. You know, it, it doesn't requ- doesn't seem to require active energy to keep it flying as well. But yeah, uh, there I, is. A... I think the anti-grav plates. Well, they work by nullifying gravity. How they work is up, is up right. to the Germans. Because science. It's because it, yeah. science, yeah. <laughs> I mean... Yeah, but I mean, it, once again, yeah, but Eldar vehicles might be a whole different thing. They might actually... I mean, if you look at uh, some of the Eldar models, the bikes actually have what appear to be sort of turbine-style jets underneath as well, you know, which... Yeah. And, and, you know, downward air pressure would also have a ground effect, so... Uh, but yeah, I guess it's up to the GM whether or not a skimmer vehicle... Yeah, would impact objects that are on the ground. To, to be and... honest, I'd say probably not. It's easier yeah. just to say no. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, okay. Then you've got walkers. So uh, yeah, this everything from the humble the humble dreadnought. 
you know, to the the, the Sentinel Walker or other similar things. Uh, I think um, that the Sentinel Walker is more humble, humble than, than the Treadmill. <laughs> it doesn't not necessarily two legged. Yeah, mm. it could be four legged. It could be lots and lots of legs. You know, there's some sort of giant centipede robot, maybe I don't know, but uh, yeah, yeah they're, they're walkers. Um, and then you've pretty much got flyers, and flyers are broken into aircraft or space or void craft. So pretty much uh, in atmosphere vehicles or uh, extra atmosphere vehicles as such. Now, here's an interesting point. Let's start off with the core rulebook here. So we've got some specific traits for some of those particular things. So for example, tracked vehicles get minus 10 on all tests involving maneuverability. Um, you get plus 10 on all tests involving difficult terrain. Uh, because of their robust nature, they treat critical hits to the motive system as being slowed, um, and uh, they are more complex to repair the motive system. Because I mean, once once a track once it, once a tank was basically detracked, it was pretty much you know it was easiest to leave them behind. Uh, okay, you've got the rules for wheeled vehicles, which is minus twenty on difficult terrain, plus ten on maneuverability tests, um, extremely difficult to control once their motive system is damaged. Uh, and far less complex, so repairing systems, repairing damage to the motor, motor system is quite easy. It's just changing a tire. Uh, you've got walkers, so walkers can ignore the penalties of difficult terrain because they just walk over it. They can't use the ram action. Um, they, they treat it like a charge, basically. Um, they are uh, able to turn in, in combat so that their facing is much less of a concern. Uh, not that, that being said, not that many vehicles actually have facing, uh, even though it is one of the rules. Um, and it can turn as many times as it like while moving. Uh, skimmers are treated as being two meters above the ground um, and ignore all forms of difficult terrain. They get plus 10 on maneuverability tests. Uh, they can't fly at altitude, though, because they're not a true flyer. Uh, and uh, there are harsher repercussions for using a, um, a ram action, basically, as well. So you've got all those traits in the main book, but no reference to air vehicles of any type. So that actually came in in uh, Enemies with, Without, where they brought in the uh, the new vehicle trait, which was flyer. And that obviously applies to both aircraft and voidcraft, um, and voidcraft there. So pretty much um, they have to move their tactical speed every single turn. Uh, so there is no sort of... I guess hoverer concept here. There's no there's no Harrier jump jets in the in the Millennium, uh, so in, in the uh, 41st Millennium. Even um, though in the war game there are plenty. Yes, yeah. yeah. Uh, they can only turn 45 degrees each time they move their own length and distance. So they've basically got a it's got almost got a slipstream effect where they've got to make multiple turns as they move. Um, they can have their altitude changed as part of a maneuver. Uh, they ignore ground terrain obviously because they're in the air. Um, when they go out of control, they start to descend automatically. All these various rules are particular to flyers, basically. So uh, that's probably the main thing, is to sort of understand the traits particular to the type of vehicle that you're talking about. And it's not clear to me whether you actually use the walker rules to cover a conventional four-legged mount. Um, you know, so, so if you are riding, you know, what are the cases? Space horse, Mike. Space horse. Okay. Uh, you know, do you also ignore difficult terrain because you know a, a person suffers difficult terrain when they try to walk through it as such? So, um, you know, I, I suppose you can still use the charge action, so that's fine. I suppose you can still turn many times. It really, I guess, comes down to the impact of difficult terrain. Yeah. So, 
It would um, depend on how long the legs of your mount are. That's right, yeah. And what 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 they end in, you know. I mean, most 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 uh, animals that are used as, as pack animals have pretty hardy feet, you know. Whether it comes down to you know hooves or the equivalent of such, you know, especially if they're yeah. shod. But uh, anyway, um, okay. So on top of that vehicle type, you've also got a number of traits for vehicles. Sorry, a number of specific characteristics that vehicles have. Uh, and pretty much most of these are particular to actual vehicles, but some apply to living mounts as well. First off, they get a speed. And the speed has two representations. One is cruising, and one is tactical. So cruising speed is the non-structured time mechanic for describing how fast the vehicle can move. And it's usually in kilometers per hour. Yeah. Uh, now, I find this funny because a lot of other game systems that, that go down into vehicles will usually break it down into this is the safe operating speed for the vehicle and this is the maximum operating speed for the vehicle. So, you know, if I've got a Ferrari, it might be a case of saying, well, it's safe to operate up to about 120 k's an hour, but it can easily go, you know, 300. But, you know, woe betide the person who drives everywhere at 300 kilometers an hour. Uh, <laughs> but this, this system's just got the one cruising speed. Uh, and the second speed is the tactical speed, which is pretty much uh, how far it moves during, or far, how far it can move during a tactical turn. And for this, it really sort of they, they, they what I would have rather they didn't is just say that these vehicles are not, you know, usable in conventional, you know, I guess ground combat. So it's one thing to have a motorbike, you know, with a with a motorbike with like an eighteen meter move you know that, that gives you quite a bit of mobility in the battlefield but the moment you've got like an f-16 jet yeah an acrylic land or something which has it which has a move of 1200 meters and because it's a flyer has to move its tactical speed every single move um <laughs> so and can only turn maximum of 90 degrees in a turn which pretty much means that if you're flying a square constantly you can only attack what's on the ground every four turns uh, <laughs> cause pretty much yeah because pretty much you, you know you move you move 1.2 k's you turn 90 degrees move 1.2 k's turn 90 degrees yeah, especially in 40k when every weapon has a range of like 20 meters <laughs> that's it <laughs> uh, so I, I guess in the case of those vehicles it really comes down to you would only really use those in a tactical combat if everybody was in those yeah uh, in which case like I, I don't know like when I start thinking about uh classic chase scenes in movies or even in role-playing games I've played, the idea of just saying that the faster vehicle gets away, you know, or, or catches up is, I think, a bit of a misnomer because it take, doesn't take into account the skill of the driver, the terrain, the conditions, um, you know, I guess the tactical sensibility to drive people down a way that doesn't let them open their vehicle up fully. Uh but in this case, yeah, I, I'd almost think that I wouldn't bother looking about the speed. Okay, the speed is well, way fast you can ever use in a you know man to, in a ground combat with men. Uh, but the you know we can say okay, well these vehicles really you know a stern chase or side by side people shooting each other. We won't worry about the speed so much as what the roles do to determine if someone actually manages to get away or yeah. catch up, etc. Okay, so next thing they have is a maneuverability. So this apply. This is effectively a modifier to your test made to maneuver the vehicle, especially when using maneuvers specific to specific to vehicles as well. Uh, they have a crew and capacity. So uh, this pretty much tells you the number of people that are required to operate the vehicle. 
in most cases, it doesn't really tell you what those people are required to do. So let's think about a World War II tank, okay? Now, a common World War II tank would have a crew of four people. So that would include a, a driver. Uh, that would include a, a gunner. That would include a loader. Um, that would include a, a commander. And a lot of them also had, would have a fifth person, which was usually a combination of radio operator slash machine gunner you know, slash lookout as such, um, you know, basically the, the fifth chair in, in the front of the tank to operate all the various other stuff. And I guess in many ways to take over if someone else is incapacitated in combat. Uh, so if you have a vehicle that's got a crew of three or four, for example, uh, and you, your players are doing that, then how do they know what each person is doing? Does that mean that one person's driving and three people are shooting? Um, you know, or do, do, is there actually a, a one job? person's driving, two people are shooting, one's hanging out the top, hitting people with their sword. <laughs> but what I mean is, like, are there roles in this particular vehicle that you have to have someone doing, but they're functionally not important to the combat? Like, you know, this person is shoveling coal into a boiler uh, because the driver can't do that. The driver needs to be operating the you know the yoke at the time as such. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. That, that's the only thought there, and, and then also you've got a capacity for for other crew as well. Um, because, you know, we've sp- spoken in the past on any war shows about, you know, a game about a tank crew. You know? yep. it, I, I love the, the film Fury. Did you see Fury in the end or not? Uh, yes. You did, yeah, okay. So. Yes, I did see Fury in the end. Yeah. It's pretty yeah. good. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. So, yeah, I mean, that, that I think would make an interesting only war game as well. And I don't know, probably a, a tank crew in Dark Heresy, you sort of wonder what, what you know, investigations the, the illusion thinks, you know what we need for this investigation? A tank. a tank that's it yeah, yeah that's it a subtlety score is fixed at zero <laughs> <laughs> um, sometimes it puts on a little fake moustache <laughs> okay you've then got facings and integrity so the, the concept here is a particularly big vehicle is being enough to diff- actually have different sort of uh, I guess hole and structure divided among the various parts of the vehicle so you know if you keep shooting it in the back Running around, then running around and shoot at the front. You know the damage you've done to the back is not going to help you penetrate the front armor as such. Yeah. That being said, most of the vehicles in the book don't have facing. Yeah, most of them are too small. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, I mean even things like Aquila Lander, you know, it's still only a single a single integrity section as such. So, the, the, but the Aquila Lander isn't that big. Yeah. Compared to some vehicles out there, I'd say an Aquila Lander is an equivalent size to like a, a modern battle tank. You think so? Yeah. Yeah, I'd say it's probably the size of a large jet. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you if you look at the if you look at the model they made for the Equilander, it's basically it's it's floor base is about the same size as a Rhino, and it's twice as tall. Yeah. So you know, it's um it's still a substantial vehicle as such. It's a substantial vehicle, but yeah. it's not. And I think if you look it's at not the, gigantic. Let, let me see what what size it gets in the book. It gets it's a uh, it's massive. Oh, sorry, that's an Arvis Light. Sorry, Arvis Light is massive. Equilander is immense. Yes. There you go. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right, um, and then integrity is basically just the amount of wounds a vehicle can take. It's whole integrity, effectively. Um, you've then got weapons and arcs. So, if you've got facings, it obviously stands to reason that weapons only have access to certain directions. You know, so a turret gun can fire uh, in every direction, or depending on how far the turret can turn. Whereas a, you know, a prow mounted weapon can only really fire to the front. Um, and uh, yeah, so. Uh, I don't really see that many uh, 40k vehicles with coaxially mounted weapons. 
Yeah, not that, many. That, that's that's quite a common thing in actual military vehicles. They they seem to have dropped out of four well, K. The thing is, in the rule, in, in sorry, in the tabletop war game, there are rules for coaxial weapons. It's just for some reason, no one uses them. Okay, I think yeah. Tau use them a bit. Yeah. But everyone else has sort of decided, nah. <laughs> okay. Uh, and then vehicles finally have traits. So traits are things like open-topped, amphibious, you know, all this sort of stuff. All, all the things that if you're... shackle. Yeah, if, you, if you're used to playing the 40k, you know, war game, you should be used to vehicles having traits, you know. So, um... Was, it, was there a ramshackle? Oh, that's right, ramshackle. That's, I forgot the ramshackle existed. Yeah. Um, what does it do? Okay, so... Oh, okay, wait. Righteous Fury really screws it over what it looks like, so... Yes, yeah. <laughs> it's a piece of junk. Yeah, that's it. So, I, I, I imagine probably all orc vehicles should get ramshackle as a as a trait. I don't oh, know. That, that, they probably get ramshackle if they're driven by someone who's not an orc. Oh, okay. It's like the old first edition rules for, for orky weapons and such. Yeah. yeah. Um, Their belief that it works helps it work. So, that's really the, the system of vehicles. Um, you know, the only real change is that when you are using a vehicle in, uh, in combat or in, in sort of structured time, that you are limited to manoeuvres each turn and, and manoeuvres that may be limited by the type of vehicle that you've got. Yeah. Otherwise, you operate them like an, any normal sort of figure or whatever the case may be in your... Um, uh, if you're doing it with miniatures or not or, or narratively, do it however you want to do it. Uh, but yeah, adding a vehicle to a scene can really, I guess, or to, to a game can really change the tone of the game. And I'm yes. going to talk about in our... in our both plot, and war, plot hooks and war gear section about... The implications of vehicles in games, and, and yeah. I guess how do you yeah, that's, where, that. that's where I'll save my discussions for vehicles as well. Okay, no worries. Well, let's close up this section now, and we'll move on. We'll come back to this at various points throughout the show as well. Yeah. All subsequent report to the administrator for career assignment. So for today's uh, class or career discussion, we've moved on to the ace role from uh, enemies beyond. Anyway, enemies without. Sorry, enemies without. Enemy for that, yeah. Same book with the fly rules. That's true, that's true, yes. It seems like an obvious choice, I guess, yeah, with a whole bunch more vehicles too. Okay, so the role of the Ace in Dark Heresy, I've noticed a lot of the roles that they've added for the other sort of splat books sort of bridge the gap between... A couple of... They're a little bit here, a little bit there. I I guess they're good for small groups where you you can't afford to have one of everything as such. Yeah. So... I mean, obviously, their, their primary thing is they are the consummate pilot slash driver slash rider, basically. You know, that, that's where their their skill is supposed to lie. But we'll come back to the well, Mike. You want to raise one particular thing that's missing from in your mind from the uh, from the ace in general? Yeah, I mean, they don't have the fieldcraft aptitude, which means that they do not get operate at the cheapest operate price. at the cheapest price. Yeah, they get agility, but which is the other uh, side of it. But, they, but yeah. Realistically, I'd rather they have fieldcraft than agility because you can get agility in loads of different ways. Yeah, well, you, I mean, you can always get other, t- you know, characteristic-based aptitudes by taking a, d- a duplication in your character creation and then swapping, swapping out, yeah. out for agility. But fieldcraft, if you take the wrong selection of homeworld and um, background, yeah. You could be a rather poor. Pilot. I'm pretty sure it also affects survival too, doesn't it? It so, also so, affects survival as well, so you yeah. won't be able to ride a horse very well either. <laughs> well, so you can ride it as well as anyone else can at the start. It yeah. just costs you more to ride up, basically. So, yeah. uh, but like I said, but yeah, that is that, that, their key point. They are supposed to be the consummate vehicle operator or rider. Uh, they seem to have a, a, a relatively decent mix of, I guess, agility and stealth-based abilities. I mean, once again, a lot of stealth is based on fieldcraft. 
Um, but they do get uh, agility uh, as a uh, as a t- as a aptitude, and they do get finesse as well. Yeah. So yeah, they make sort of decent. Re- realistically, agi- you should try your absolute best to get fieldcraft in there. Because... Yeah, and we'll cover that after the builds as yeah. well. So, yeah. uh, and I guess the other thing they get is a well, they get the tech aptitude, but they don't get intelligence. Yeah. But they, it is portrayed that they are also decent for you know, anyone that is going to operate a vehicle needs to understand how to maintain it, and so therefore they will have more technical skills than, I guess, a non-tech member of a uh, of a warband. Basically, yeah, they're, they're so. not as good as a tech priest, but they're better than any old. Yeah, player. that's true. Yeah, yeah they, are, they are sort of a half-half on a lot of things, basically. Yeah. Okay, so their special ability is called the right stuff. Uh, it allows you to spend a fate point to automatically succeed on an operate or survival roll to pilot or ride uh, in order to get automatic successes, degree success equal to your agility bonus. Yeah. Um, which I, I can think of a number of reasons why I would care about the degree success on a on a test like that. So Definitely. That's, yeah. not, not, that's not a bad one. Some of them when you get multiple degrees, success, I think, well, it doesn't really add a lot to it. But, but with piling, it does. And that's actually it even more powerful when you combine it with um, the... Hotshot pilot talent, yeah. As well. well, okay. So I guess first off, that this is one of the sort of key points of the ace role when it comes to any game, which is if you're going to have someone that wants to play an ace, you need to make sure that there are opportunities to put vehicles into your game. Yeah. Yeah. If if player walks up to me and says, "I'm going to build an ace," and I'm not planning to have any vehicle stuff in my game, it's going to be, you know, all you know, deep underground exploration or hive work and such. I'm going to say, "Look, just letting so you know." There's not going to be a lot of opportunity for vehicles in this game, and therefore, your first off, your special ability is pretty much null and void, and some of your mate, key stats are not going to be as useful as such. You know, maybe you would consider playing, you know, an outcast or something else instead that might be more, more in what, what you want as such. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay, so building an ace characteristics definitely agility first. You know, uh, agility is going to affect your um, your operate survival. is based on it's still agility when you're riding, I believe, isn't it? Uh, I believe it's agility, yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah when you're riding, it's it's agility still. Yeah. So agility is still going to be your primary your primary driver for the for the character. Um, I think as a as a combat skill, probably ballistic skill would be my pick. Uh, it depends. I mean, I suppose if you go for like mounted cavalry, yeah. that you know, weapon Obviously, skill might be more suited or such. But yeah, yeah. Uh, certainly. But if you're talking about vehicle mounted weapons, if you're driving a vehicle of some type, there's very few vehicle mounted melee weapons. Yes. Uh, <laughs> Unless you're a dreadnought. Yeah, that's true, yeah. But I mean, most vehicle mounted melee weapons just have an immediate effect, like, for example, dozer blades. Yeah. You, know, you don't need to roll a weapon skill to hit with a dozer blade, for example. It's a ram action. Um, okay, intelligence, I guess, impacts your things like uh, your tech use to actually maintain your vehicle. So that'd probably be one of the things I consider. And with any character that's going to draw fire uh, or be in a burning be- burning vehicle, I always recommend toughness. Yeah, you know, um, agility helps you get not, helps you not be on fire, but toughness helps you you know survive when you survive are survive when you are, which exactly. will inevitably happen. That's it. Yeah. I'd probably also say perception. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. I'd go perception. I mean, generally speaking, pilots have to have good eyesight and things like that. You know, you have to be able to spot enemy tanks, yeah, enemy fun. infantry it's, sneaking up on your tank. It's funny because I, I put awareness in there for that exact reason, but didn't put perception on as a, as a character. So that's a good point. Yeah, so perception definitely. Yeah. Uh, okay, so skill-wise, as I mentioned, awareness. You know, it, it's the um, classic thing is that, that, especially when you're operating at things at breakneck speed, like in a, in a fighter fighter jet, your ability to take in and analyze your surroundings is going to be c- critical to your success. Um, 
I can see command being, you know, especially if you're like from a fighter squadron, yep. you know, or from a from a military unit as such that the you know, command would be a, a fitting trait. And that being said, they've really got no social aptitudes. Yeah. Uh, so it's going to be an yeah. expensive choice, but that's you it, may yeah. want to consider that's, it. That's it. We're if you're going to go for a social skill, command is probably the way you should. Exactly go. right. Yeah. Uh, navigate. It's all well and good to be able to use a vehicle, but if you don't know where you're going, that quickly gets quite embarrassing. Yep. Uh, so navigate, uh, particularly navigate akin to what you're actually going to be doing. So navigate surface if you're going to be yeah. you know, operating surface. Uh, obviously operate um, is a key one. And once again, because you don't get skills immediately from your uh, from your role selection, this might be something you have to you really want to be looking to buy straight away. Straight away, exactly. Yeah, you're not going to be a very good ace if you don't know how to derive anything or ride anything. Or yep, really do any ace-like abilities. <laughs> Uh, security is one of those ones that is key to both protecting your vehicle and stealing other people, other people's vehicles as well. Yes, uh, as always, a handy one to have. Survival, if you're a rider, uh, yeah, survival is a skill you use there. Uh, plus, actually, I also recommend you consider trade agri because uh, if you read the description of trade agri, it actually applies to caring for animals as well. Yeah. So not just like you know riding around, but also seeing to your animals needs it's, it's almost the tech use for animals as such yeah uh, and of course tech use for non-animal mounts as well for, for actual vehicles is a, is a key one um, with the talents I'm going to say first of all I went through the main book and didn't see a lot of talents that are particularly keyed to being a driver or being a pilot yeah okay you can take whatever combat talents are going to meet your combat style but that's something you can go through any of our episodes for the only ones that really stood out are ones that you might want to consider for this as a character are keen intuition which allows you to re-roll a failed awareness test at a minus 10, coming back to that need to sort of spot things. Yep. And probably mastery operate, which allows you to spend a fate point to uh, automatically succeed at your chosen skill, provided the difficulty of the roll is no greater than plus zero. Yeah. But that being said, from enemies without, there are a number of new talents that you know I'd always consider for an ace like hotshot pilot, hold down, push limit, skilled rider, that sort of stuff. You know, you definitely consider for an ace. Uh, Homeworld-wise, uh, so in, in the case of both homeworlds and uh, backgrounds, we really tried to find things that would give us, you know, things like the operate skill or the field craft aptitude, or I actually went for a few that would give the offense aptitude because the character, so the, they don't get weapon skill or ballistic skill, they don't get offense. So I see the driver as a combat style role. And to have you know not have the highest cost for both weapon skill and ballistic skill well, is pretty rough. So they do get finesse though, don't they? They do get finesse. So the finesse applies. Finesse to applies like... to ballistic skill. Oh, ballistic skill. Okay, no, right. yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Right. so offense so, is their strength. Is weapon, weapon skill. Weapon sorry. skill. That's right. Sorry, yeah. yeah but okay. they should really be able to defend themselves and their vehicles as well. Yeah, especially if you're yeah. going to go for a cavalry map. Yeah, but I did look for a couple things with offense, for example. So, so going through home worlds uh, I looked at hive world gives you a high agility high perception and the perception aptitude yep. uh, though they do get perception so that gives you an extra choice basically um, frontier world gives you a high ballistic skill a high perception and the ballistic skill aptitude so a couple with finesse will give you cheap ballistic skill um, death world is fantastic death world gives you high agility high perception and field craft yep. so that's almost like a you know you want to you want to play like a a uh, Katachan Sentinel pilot basically would be a, a particularly yeah. good choice. Not sure particularly a Katachan Sentinel pilot is very useful for the Inquisition, <laughs> yeah, but you never know. <laughs> um, Quarantine World as well gives you a high ballistic skill and the field craft aptitude. Yeah. Uh, looking at some of the backgrounds, 
I think that Arbite's fits the sort of driver mold relatively well. They do get the offense aptitude is probably the one thing going for them, but certainly or, or defense. Yeah, that's it. You know. But you know the uh, the repressor is such a great vehicle. You know to be a yeah. repressor pilot uh, just because of the name. I think if nothing else, uh, the Adeptus Mechanicus give you operate and tech use and the tech aptitude which you do get, but you could swap that sample for intelligence yeah. and get your um, get your high uh, technical ability there. Uh, Imperial Guard gives you operate, navigate, and field craft. Yeah, which so, is yeah. excellent. I mean, if you're going to be a pilot with Valkyries or anything like that, it's, you know, yeah, exactly. Imperial Guard's where most people are going to learn how to drive if they're from a world which doesn't have many vehicles. Yep. Uh, Outcast. This gives you field craft. Imperial Navy gives you operate and the uh, offense aptitude. And Road Trader Fleet, you also get Operate as well, but that's a, that's a relatively minor consideration. Yeah. Uh, so looking at the builds that uh, I put together for this episode, uh, I had, first off, my first idea was, you know, being an Aussie, I've got to go for the Mad Max style warrior of the wasteland as such, you know. Lord um, Among Us, the hero <laughs> of our story. That's it. Uh, so in this case, I've gone for a Frontier World Outcast Ace. Um, you know, so... Uh, here they're going to get a high ballistic skill, high perception, poor fellowship. You know, I'd say that pretty much fits... Poor fellowship, I think, fits Max pretty well, don't you? Yeah, yeah. Um, skills would be sleight of hand, common law underworld, deceive, dodge, and stealth. So they're relatively capable outside the vehicle as well. Yeah. Uh, talents will be weapon training chain and solid projectile and hard target. They start with an auto pistol, flak vest, injector, and... I was really torn between the two doses of Obscura or Slaught. I went with Slaught in the end, but, you know, I think either would be suitable or such. Uh, fate Threshold is going to be three. Blessing, seven plus, so probably three. Uh, aptitudes will be Ballistic Skill, Field Craft, Agility, Finesse, Perception, Tech, and Willpower. So, high, you know, highest Ballistic Skill, highest Operate, um, but then it's not... Highest so Agility. Yeah, so you'll, you'll need to buy, for example, Operate for this one. Yep. you'll probably want to consider buying um, uh, Navigate which is going to be a bit more expensive in this case yep. uh, although you do get Fieldcraft you to get Fieldcraft yeah. to make Navigate not too bad yeah. uh, only kicker though is the low wound 7 plus 1d5 yeah, uh, yeah but that's still that, that's a pretty good yeah uh, that's a pretty good build I like that one yeah. yeah okay the second one I've got is the Top Gun for your uh, for your uh, Void Ship or, or in this case we've gone for an Aeronautica pilot so uh, in this case we've gone for Voidborn Imperial Navy and Ace. Yep. So, high intelligence, high willpower, low strength. Uh, skills will be Athletics, Command, Common Law Imperial Navy, Navigation Stellar, and Operate Aeronautica. Um, talents would be Strong-Minded, Weapon Training. Uh, with Weapon Training, you get the option of Chain or Shock. And I was thinking about the fact that... Uh, so, look, okay, let's look at that Modern Warfare. Um, you've, ever, you've ever heard of the FNP-90, the submachine gun? Yeah. Yeah. The, the whole intent behind the P90 was to create a firearm that would be small enough to be easily carried by a downed pilot, uh, but still have the stopping power of a rifle. H- hence, it's, you know, it's got submachine gun caliber bullets, but in a rifle-shaped rifling as such, so therefore has high penetration. And, and so I thought of any weapons that a pilot's going to carry need to be small and portable as such. You know, So a chainsword... You know, not easy to sort of stow in the cockpit with you as such. So that's why I went with the shock option instead. Yeah, I, um, I'd agree with that, especially since shock cutlasses are a thing. Yep. And it, it sort of strikes me as the sort of weapon that, that 
a minor petty officer piloting one of these ships would probably carry around. Exactly. I think a hotshot pilot as well in this case. So equipment, I went with the um, the hand cannon over the um, uh, over the uh, what was the big weapon it had? Oh, the combat shotgun. Once again, combat shotgun. Bit too big. Bit, to bit, bit too big. And a down pilot is not a close quarters fighter. No. You know that they, they are uh, avoid being you know captured as such. And uh, so the hand cannon there, the shock whip, flat coat, rebreather, and microbead. Uh, fate threshold of three with a blessing of five plus. Aptitudes will be intelligence, offense. Agility, finesse, uh, perception, tech, and willpower. So they will be strong technically. They're going to get the the best tech use in that case. Uh, they get a good mix of like you know, half price on well the middle range on ballistic skill, on weapon skill, on operate. You know, so uh, I'd recommend that they buy navigate surface if they're going to be taking uh, uh, operate aeronautica because you still use na- navigate surface for. Um, it's, it's navigate surface for air, like, yeah, yeah, in yeah. atmosphere fighting, basically. Yeah, yeah. definitely on a, on a planet, navigate surface. Yeah. Because they, they do get the option of taking operate spacecraft, but the, I'm going more for the sort of you know the need for speed here in this in this case, and that's yeah. not spacecraft aren't that at all. No, no I, I think really this is a character which is going to be good at being a pilot at the beginning, but that no cheat the operate skill not being super cheap. Yeah. I think they're going to struggle a little bit later on. Yeah, that's it. Um, but they do get a hotshot pilot, at least they, in this they case. They do get hotshot pilot, um, plus you know their special ability of being an ace. Yeah. But low wounds, once again, 7 plus 1d5. But that being said, the, the fighter pilot is pretty, pretty much the glass cannon. They're yeah. devastating when they're in their vehicle, weak when they're not. Yeah. So. And the last one we went for is basically your outrider. You know, There are plenty of regular mounted cavalry units in the Imperial Guard. In this case, I've gone for a Feudal World Imperial Guard Ace. So this will get high perception, high weapon skill, low intelligence, skills of athletics, common law Imperial Guard, Medicaid and Navigate Surface. Uh, talents will be weapon training, LAS and low tech, and hard target. Um, with the Imperial Guard, you get the choice of the LAS gun or the LAS pistol and sword. I thought LAS pistol and sword much better for cavalry. Yep. Um, combat vest. Imperial Guard Flak Armor, Grappling Online, 12 Low 6 and Magnoculars. Uh, fate Threshold of 3 with a Blessing of 6+. plus. Aptitudes here will be Weapon Skill, Field Craft, Agility, Finesse, Perception, Tech, and Willpower. So they will get the decent... Um, they'll, they'll get they, the cheapest Agility, cheapest Perception. That's it, yeah. Uh, but they've also got the good... They, they get the half-priced Weapon Skill and Ballistic Skill. Yeah. Uh, and High Wounds, 9 plus 1d5. Yeah. Uh, but you've got to buy survival because you know you're going to be maybe mounted warrior. You need to have survival to make that work, and potentially even trade agri, uh, well, skilled, skilled rider for example as a talent. Yeah, with perception and fieldcraft aptitude, you'll be able to buy it pretty cheap as well. Yes, yeah, so. that's it. So don't get locked down to thinking of the ace as a fighter pilot. You know, it's the normal yeah. we normally associate with ace. But any anything that moves, if it moves, you can drive it. Yes, and then come up with some various option to do that. As long as you buy the skill to drive it. Exactly right. Yes. Uh, okay, so a couple of tips on playing an ace. If your GM allows you to play in a, a character that has a vehicle in you know, regular combat, then remember that your biggest strength is mobility. You, know, you can move further than anybody else in the board, or on, on the game as such. You know, you can, so when someone tries to get away, you're the best person to chase them down. Um, you know, that does mean that if you're going very fast, you might be the first person to actually become engaged in combat. 
Uh, but First person on. to get ambushed. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. But uh, just mobility is your strength. Uh, make sure that you give character to your ride, no matter what, what, no matter whether it's an animal or a bike or a car. You know, if the, if your character is their focus is this vehicle, then you need to you know give it its own personality, give it a name, give it quirks. Uh, you know, make some kind about the machine spirit. Uh, you know, make it a part of your story, not just another piece of equipment on your sheet. Yeah. Uh, and I, I guess you know, understand the utility that you bring. It's not just a case of, you know, depending on what kind of vehicle you got, it's not just your combat effectiveness, but the fact that you fundamentally change some of the things about the way the game works. You know, overland travel may become a lot more of a hand wave thing in your game because everyone can just get into your car and you can drive somewhere. You know, some of the where walking would take hours, for example, and that just bypasses a whole bunch of potential threats. Yeah, we'll keep that in mind. All right, let's move on to the next step because there's more to talk about through our following sections. Yes. Attention, loyal servants of the Imperium. Stand by to receive orders. So for our plot hook section, rather than going for a specific plot hook, I want to just talk about the concept of running a vehicle-based campaign. And, and this is, I suppose it's partly what we discussed in the past with having a tank-based game in, you know, in Only War. But more what I'm talking about here is the game where everybody has a vehicle you know yeah. so you know warriors of the wasteland with the case where everyone everyone has bikes or cars and this is just the way that the group operates which i think could work in dark heresy you know it, it may be that the world the world that you're operating on is particularly backwater uh you know and that that is the best methodology of getting around one of the advantages of enclosed vehicles is that they can often traverse environmentally hazardous areas of which there are plenty in the 40k universe yeah, uh, and yeah, they become not only a, a set piece, but you know, crucial to the character's survival. If they, you know, if long term exposure to the outside world could be dangerous, you know, your vehicle becomes a lifeline as well as a method of getting around. Yeah. Uh, so I guess, my, what do you think are some of the considerations for using vehicles in general in a campaign, especially on a larger scale? In general. Yeah. Um. I suppose the first thing is if you're using a, a vehicle as a plot foil, so the bad guy hops in a tank and escapes into the... Yeah. Remember that if you give it stats, people are going to be able to destroy it, or they're going to try to. Yeah. So it, only stat it, only really worry about it if it's needed. Otherwise, you, you can narratively deal with big vehicles. Yeah. The other thing is if you've got players who particularly... An ace, for example, and they have their fancy vehicle. It's very tempting as a DM to just destroy it out of hand, yeah. and it sort of let it, it cheapens the destruction if it happens every other game. So yeah. I suppose they're the two main things that I can think of really for vehicles. Yeah, I mean, okay, I, I want to inject a little bit of realism here for a second. Yeah. Okay, so when it comes to vehicles in combat. Vehicles are either hardened for combat, you know, a lot, we're talking about tanks, APCs, etc., or they're not. You know, they're conventional vehicles. And, and, you know, third world countries all over the world have militaries that use Toyota Hiluxes, you know, with a machine gun on the back as such, you know. Yeah. And, and steel plates welded to the side. Yeah, that's it. Okay, so the first thing about non hardened vehicles is that they are not really 
overly combat effective once they actually enter combat. Yes, they are an easy way of transporting an otherwise difficult to transport weapon system, like a man of machine gun. They're, but, they're also great for oppressing unarmed masses. Yes, but, but once you start shooting at them, um, yeah, I, I think most of our listeners are probably clear to the fact that vehicles don't offer much ballistic protection. You know, the, the, the velocity at which a, a, even a modern round enters a vehicle that will happily pass through the entire vehicle and out the other side. Okay, yeah, you might be lucky taking cover behind the engine block, for example. The more it's got to pass through, especially metal, <clears throat> the greater chance either the bullet will lose all its energy or it will deflect you know, in a harmless direction. But you know, movies where cops stand behind car doors, you know, it, it, it offers so little protection that it, you know, it wouldn't be done. They might as well be standing behind a wooden yeah, table. Yeah, it, it's, it's the difference between, between you know, armour and concealment, basically. Uh, so if your vehicle is unhardened, you know, once it enters into a combat, it's pretty much going to end up no longer operable as such. Twisted once, once, once people start putting conventional rounds onto it as such. Yeah. Because then you've got an armoured vehicle, like a tank or an APC. And in this case, you know, even if I have a machine gun, I can fire a lot at a tank, all right? And I'm going to do all sorts of horrible things to the paintwork, to the, to the polish, to the, to the, probably even to the shape. But the chance of an actual conventional round penetrating, you know, a tank hull, even from consecutive hits to the same place, uh, is, is so little that the idea is you don't just shoot continual conventional arms at a tank until you get through. You generally bring along a weapon which is designed to penetrate the tank's armor, and usually those weapons are one-hit kills. You know? yeah. So if, if you're talking about, you know, effectively some form of, um, you know, LOL or that sort of stuff, um, uh, missiles, I mean, it's going to, um, you know, launch up and then come down the tank like a conventional Hellfire, for example... Yeah, you know, once it penetrates the armored hull, it's going to explode on the inside, and that's going to do all sorts of horrible things to the crew. So, the only problem I have with using vehicles in a role-playing game, if you're playing for anything, anything realistic, is the fact that they are either useless or they are unbeatable until they are completely beatable. Yeah. Because you know, either your opponents are just shooting at ineffectively with auto guns, or uh, the uh, you know, they, they bring along something and it's pretty much if they hit you with this you're screwed anyway if you're playing realistically okay. yeah but most role playing games aren't realistic most role playing games 40k in particular yeah most role playing games treat armoured vehicles as a blade of armour yeah effectively it just keeps taking conventional shots getting weaker and weaker and weaker until you know you've ablated all of the hull integrity and it's now crippled as such which is not you know how most armoured vehicles actually work, but, you know, for the purposes of a role-playing game, it, I guess it gets around the problem that, you know, it's not a fun to either be invulnerable or immediately destroyed. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, if you are going for your, um, uh, your campaign of uh, rat, rat, ramshackle vehicles pulled together on a, you know, wasteland-style, Mad Max-style environment... Then um, that's great. It doesn't matter. You know, if they're crippled with, with conventional weapons, they can still be repaired. They can still be replaced as such. And that brings back to the point that I think you wanted to raise, Mike, which is destroying players' vehicles. Yeah. You want to have a quick talk about that, that, that point and, and such? Well, yeah, I mean, don't just do it because. Mm. Oh, okay, you've got to go to this location. You all go to get in the plane or the jet or the Aquila lander or whatever it is. And you all start walking over there and suddenly it blows up because the bad guys already thought of that. Okay, that, that is, is a cheap cop-out to start with. And second, you've, if you've got an ace in particular, 
as we've said, they're built around being inside their vehicle, and now you've taken it away. Yeah. Just because you're too lazy to really think, what am I going to do? How am I going to incorporate the key p- components of this character into the game? So yeah. don't do it. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. <laughs> it is. You can do it, sorry. I'm not going to say don't ever do it, but don't do it on a regular basis. Yeah. I mean, once again, a vehicle is not just a piece of gear on the sheet. Yeah. Uh, it has a lot more to that, or at least it should have it if you're doing it right. And so, while it's all well and good to say that the players are, you know, surrendering their weapons taken off them, you know, if every time the vehicle gets in the way of your plot, you know, you Deus Ex Machina in, 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 into pieces, uh, that's going to really suck for the player, especially if they have done the right thing and uh, put together a backstory or information about, you know, said vehicle as such. Uh, but yeah, it's just one of those considerations. I think that it needs to be a set piece, not just a constant target. Uh, and and if you, if you need to have particularly, you know, if, you, if you're actually going to have this game section and the, the group's vehicle is just going to cause problems, rather than blowing it up, come up with some other reason why they can't take it as such. You know, they've got to, uh, I mean, I was about, about, okay, Mass Effect before. Okay, so in, the, in, in an example of Mass Effect, the first time you actually really have a vehicle in a mission, You've got this sort of opening part where you've got to drive to where the next section of the mission is, and then the the, the next section has this really co- really hard fight. Uh, and you, if you had the vehicle in that fight, it'd be no problem. But when you get to the point just before that fight, pretty much there is a section of terrain which the vehicle can't get past, and you've got to get, dismount and go in person as such. And that what's make that's what makes the next fight quite a climactic fight in the scene as such because you can't take the vehicle there, even though literally five minutes ago you were destroying the same enemies with one shot from the vehicle's gun yeah uh, but yeah that's the thing is, it's, it's, it, you can easily create circumstances in your game where they have to leave the vehicle behind uh, you know some, and it, usually the best thing is size yeah. you know, it's, just, it's just not practical to get something of this size through this through this situation as such you know yeah, but loads of other reasons as well and you can make it that they can if they want to yeah it just, you know, it just changes it, I mean it, yeah. subtlety is the perfect example if if a vehicle becomes known and it will eventually you know yeah. an Aquila lander with inquisitorial eyes painted all over it and death to heretics written <laughs> on the wings it's going to draw a fair bit of attention and they can take it with them if they want but obviously it's going to draw a lot of attention yeah but, you know, if your players like the idea of a vehicle-based campaign, I'd certainly give it a go. Yeah, <laughs> certainly give it a look. I'm, I'm sure there are even some RPGs out there that are sort of based around the concept of the Mad Max-style-esque oh, yeah. um, you know, wasteland sort of environment as well. But uh, And it, 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 we mentioned before how much we love resources like games as well. And certainly when you've got yeah. to worry about things like fuel and ammunition, that all adds to that as well. So, All right, let's keep going on to one last thing about vehicles. Okay. Revere the Omnisia, for it is the source of all power. For our war gear, uh, I want to pick a particular vehicle, which is what I think is probably the easiest vehicle to bring into a uh, into a Dark Heresy game. Yeah, uh, it's from the main book. It's called the Veloxic bike. Yep. So it's pretty much your standard two-wheeled motorcycle. Uh, very common in uh, Hive Resolium. I think, you know, if you read the description, it features an you know, oversized engine. You know, if you want to use the image of the Space Marine bike with the massive tires, I think that's probably a good 
uh, good one to use. There is actually a picture of a character with a bike. It doesn't mention if it's a Velocity bike, but let's assume that it is. Um, so it's a single passenger bike. Um, you know, it gets plus ten. Uh, uh, so, uh, so you can carry a passenger as well, but it gets it gets a plus ten difficulty on its maneuver test. But being wheeled, it automatically gets the benefit of you know the, the easy maneuverability. Uh, it also has the option of a uh, forward-mounted auto gun. It does upgrade the uh, the difficult to obtain from average to scarce. Yeah, but that's not too much out of. It. I mean, a, a, a scarce thing to get a bike like this with an auto gun on top is actually yeah. And I think it's scarce. You can actually start with this as one of your starting items of gear. Exactly right. So yeah. for an ace, obviously that that's really quite important. Yeah, and I think that I mean I've played enough. If you played Cyberpunk or Shadowrun. Invariably, someone in the game has a motorbike. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, it's not game-breaking. Uh, you know, in the right physical environment, you can use it in combat without being too out of, out of whack. You know, it's, uh, it's got a high tactical speed. It's 35 metres, so it can really get around. Uh, but, you know, that's, that's, not, that's not too bad. It's only got a whole integrity of 10. Um, and it's got um, eight armour on, uh, on each facing as such. But... Uh, I don't know, I think it's, it's it's pretty straightforward and a, and a, and a good choice just as a basic uh, as a basic vehicle. But I just realised when I'm looking at this stat block, I made a mistake earlier when I was talking about how most vehicles don't have facings. They've all got facings. I wasn't looking at the top of the stat block. So even even the Arvis Lighter, which I said has no, has no facings, has facings. Yeah. So here we go. So just go back to that part of the, the show, ignore that, and uh, and we'll move on. And, but, and carry on. Yeah, there we go. So, so it tells you how, how prepared we are tonight. Uh, but no, so I've actually had um, this used in, in a dark racing game that I've run, and it was not unquestionable, not game breaking, and added an extra element of fun, I guess. You know, yeah. and you, if you're not making rolls, you're not worried about the plus ten ability increase, but then it's an easy way of getting two characters around as well. Yeah, and it adds in the adds in the fun of vehicle chases as well. Yeah, which are a nice additional thing to to put into a game. That's it. Okay, let's keep going. Okay, my lord. The information you requested is now available for your review. Okay, enough about vehicles. Uh, now it's time for a review. We, we are sort of starting to run relatively low on stuff to review, but I've chosen to... So, so, okay, so recently I went to, into a DW store and went looking for new audiobooks and also got sold on picking up a couple of uh, 40k graphic novels. Yeah. I, I, I've had a few in the past. Well, I, I know I've certainly mentioned Demonifuge several times. Um, but I thought, you know, it's worthwhile. We have spoken about several books in the past. I'm going to talk about one of the graphic novels that I've got. And the one I picked is uh, One of 40K Exterminatus, which is by Dan Amdett and Ed uh, Edgington. Uh, so this one is... Let me see if I can just find the date it was published. 2008 first edition. So um, it's possibly still able to be obtained. It's been, put, been published by Boom Studios. Uh, but this is one of my... Uh, Demonifuge is definitely my favourite of the comics, but this is probably uh, my second favourite. It's got a few things going for it. First off, it's one of the few comics I've got that is completely colour, front to back. Uh, it, it does seem like it's a bit of a trade paperback, the one I've got, in that it's got a number of chapters, so it's almost like it's multiple single single editions being put together, but I think it was only ever, it's only ever been published in this format. Um, what I like about this one, and why I've related it to Dark Heresy, is that a large portion of the story follows an Inquisitor and the Retinue, basically. Um, so I'm not going to give too much in terms of uh, spoilers, but first off, it starts off with an investigation into a, uh, a buried Chaos Titan, 
Uh, one of the things that I sort of liked in the early part of the book is there is one character who is recruited by the Inquisitor as an acolyte right before the Inquisitor decides to declare Exterminatus on that character's world. So pretty much they are selected to be the sole survivor of their world and taken with the uh, uh, taken with the uh, Inquisitor, which was an interesting sort of character arc in many ways. Second thing is that it, it had an element in it which I decided to use in my own role-playing games, which was the concept of effectively weaponizing an untouchable, uh, using that as a way to conceal particular events from going on. Uh, and and it, it did feature very well a, a large investigation by an inquisition into crop nobility, which is, you know, I think a classic trope in the, the sort of 40k inquisition thing. And, you know, about halfway through the story, it turns from investigation to all-out war. There's just, um, everything seems to be going quite well, and then a drop pod appears, and the out of the drop pod steps a Chaos Dreadnought, uh, which is a, a beautiful piece of artwork. And suddenly we've now then bringing in Black Templars and um, we've got Space Battles and Thousand Suns. So, you know, some really sort of classic 40k stuff. And then it ends off by going back to the investigation and the resolution of the storyline involving the, um, you know, corruption and nobility. And really just overall great artwork. The the artists involved are a number of them. Um, Daniel Lapham, Kevin Hopgood, Rabin uh, Sibilis, Jeff Zornow, Chris DeBarry and Tony Parker. Um, so, but yeah, the artwork in this is great. It's diff- different artists per chapter, but the artwork is relatively consistent. I, I quite like it, and I would definitely recommend if you get your hands on it. It's definitely worth a look. It's a good story and uh, a fun read if you like comic books. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I'd probably be a few more episodes in the future where I do also review other graphic novels as we go. All right, let's keep going. Okay. Ignorance is a blessing. The data you requested is unavailable. So, for our discussion, I wanted to uh, create a new section for our Dark Heresy episodes to talk about, and that is about the various factions of the Inquisition. So, we're not talking about the Auto Xenos and Auto Radicus and such, we're talking about different sort of semi-political or belief factions that different Inquisitors belong to, and we're going to start with my favourite one, which is the Thorians. Uh, And so... Thorians are regarded as one of the more puritanical sects. In some ways, I question a little bit. I've usually sort of portrayed Thorians as a little bit more radical, but yeah, we'll, we'll come to this sort of belief set and why why I think that. But uh, the, the the basis for their belief is that the first of all, they believe that the the God Emperor is um, more of a I guess almost a concept, an esoteric thing as such. That you know, that, that inside the vessel that was the God Emperor basically lay a being of supreme power. And that the husk that now sits atop the Golden Throne is no longer the God Emperor. You know, that, that, that power has moved on and, they, and we now basically exonerate what was merely a vessel uh, for that greatness. And that, um, first off, they believe that that sort of the, the energy or the, the 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 being that was the God Emperor has now sort of been disseminated throughout the universe into multiple figures of great power. And the reason they take the name Thorian is that they actually refer specifically to Sebastian Thor, who was the hero of the Age of Apostasy, 
uh, as an example of a, fi- a figure that uh, was, you know, so much closer to the emperor as to clearly have been, you know, the recipient of part of his great essence and stuff. Not the emperor himself, but certainly heavily, a, a, you know, a heavy shard of the emperor included there. And the other beings like living saints as such are likewise, um, you know, a part of the emperor's greatness simply distilled into slightly smaller forms. Uh, and so the Thorian belief is that one day the the being that is the emperor will uh, will appear again, will um, be you know, reborn, be reborn as such. And so they are always on the lookout for you know that particular you know for for signs of that you know for uh, that that eventual sort of second coming of the emperor, if you if you will. Uh, so. I don't know. I mean, first of all, Mike, just on that basis alone, where do you, where would you feel that would sit on the uh, puritanical to um, radical spectrum? Um, it depends how fervently they believe that the emperor sitting on the golden throne is no longer the emperor. If they believe, like any of these things, that there are varying shades of where they fall in the spectrum. If they believe that he is still the emperor, but some of his power he sends out to, to go into other people, I'd say they're quite puritanical. If they believe that the emperor sitting on the golden throne is just a meat popsicle and all his power has left him, I'd say that's that bordering on heretical. Yeah. Okay, let, let, let's let's bring in a, a, a modern analogy. Okay, so imagine for a sec that... Uh, so um, in, in the Christian religion, the crucifix is a sign of the religion, okay? Yeah. And that uh, you know, many churches would have effigies of Christ for example that, that, uh, and you would have to agree that those statues are a spiritual object a sacred object as such they, they, they are a target for faith in this case and I would say that the general Thorian belief is that the, the what, is, what sits atop the golden throne is certainly an object of divine reverence yeah. um, as much as any other effigy created in the emperor's image would be but that you know that that, that effigy is while it's a target for faith, is not necessarily that same being making decisions and you know enga- actively guiding the will of the the the, the Imperium via yeah. the High Lords of Terror. I think that would depend upon the individual Thorian and where they what they personally believe. Because I think quite a few would still think he is still operating. From within that, yeah. Well, there is some, there is some portion of that great spirit yeah. in there as well. In yeah, there so. as well, yeah. yeah. Um, but th- th- there'll certainly be those as well who believe that all that power has left him and is looking for a new form to be reborn. Yeah. And I think the ones that believe that would probably, by some, be considered heretical. Yeah. See, I, I look at it this way. Um, there are plenty of stories in every single religion about figures, you know, key figures who spoke to God, whatever in various religions, but. If a person today stands up and says, "I just had a conversation with God," you know, the, the church aren't the churches of the world aren't going quickly get this person. What did God say to you? The first assumption is that the person's a nutter. Yeah, uh, and so I think it's odd with the Thorians that they basically they are specifically looking for miracles in a while being part of a group which is designed to show you know miracles as actually. As evidence of heresy, as such, you know. So I've, I've certainly read books or seen stuff in the Forty Universe where, you know, a living saint is found, and the first thing the Inquisition tries to do is determine, you know, is it a living saint or is it actually, 
Something yeah. of the wall. Yeah, it's exactly yeah. right. Yeah, because it could quite easily be either as such. But they still accept, you know, that that miracles today do happen in the in that setting, and therefore, you know, like we are, we always talk about the saints now posthumously as such in in once again in modern Christianity that um, you know no one has ever been uh, there's, there's no, you're not going to find a living saint in modern times. I don't think. Yeah. We've certainly got people that have been canonized not long after. Um, there are deaths as such, but uh, it's different in the Fortnite universe. You can say that this person is actually a divine being uh, and, and get away with that potentially. There may even be factions in the Inquisition and other ones that just simply don't accept living saints and believe that they are, they are all some form of heresy as such. Not the Thorians. The Thorians are the ones that are on the lookout for exactly these sorts of individuals. Yeah. And the difficulty, I think, as well for the Thorians is the fact that the Emperor was a psyker. You know, he was presumably the first and most powerful psyker. Depending on which background story for them, you believe there may have been previous psychers who all gave their own lives to form the great being as such. But uh, you know, he was a psyker. There's, there's no doubt about that. Uh, and so, and psychers are inherently regarded as something which is unclean in the Imperium. Yet, presumably, if if they are looking for the eventual rebirth of the Emperor, they are looking for a psyker. Uh, and you know. If they just if they just stick that psycho on a black ship and send them off to Earth, do they then kill that psycho's potential to actually be the rebirth of the Emperor? Or, or you know, will you have a being which doesn't quite know that the Emperor first until they come into their full power? Or will this being instantly be clearly uh, you know such great power that, that it's, this is obviously the Emperor reborn? You know, all these things, I guess, Thorians have to sort of work out amongst themselves. Uh, so yeah, I think that the, the key point is that because so much of this is based upon the concept of faith that you would have a large gamut of Thorian beliefs you know, and, and some of those would be very puritanical and some of those as you say would almost be borderline heresy if not obvious radicalism but you know potentially pushing into the realms of you know too radical as such yeah uh, but no I, I quite like this group because um, it's one of the few inquisition groups that actually embraces the concept of hope. You know, that, that actually believes that there is, you know, we, we, we're not just fighting a losing battle until the end, that there is something else to come and we need to protect... There's a the, second coming and yeah. when it arrives, everyone will be ushered into a glorious new era. Exactly right, yeah. Yes. <laughs> Imperium 2.0. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah which, is, which is an unusual concept in the 40K universe. Sort yeah. of, it's, it's, it's a little bit less grimdark. Else. It is, but it, it leads to some good stories as well because then you can have the Thorian Inquisitor who slowly loses hope over that sort of thing. And generally speaking, I always get the impression that Thorian Inquisitors are generally quite young Inquisitors who are sort of a little bit naive to the way things work. Yeah. And then over time, they sort of drift into other factions, either mm. other ra- either more radical factions or more puritanical factions. Exactly. So, I've never used a Thorian Inquisitor in a Dark Heresy game, but I have used a Thorian Inquisitor in a Rogue Trader game. So, for example, I had in one of our games that a Thorian Inquisitor sent an agent to actually collect um, genetic samples from uh, the Rogue Trader and their crew under the pretense of uh, basically making sure that the records on Terra maintain a full genetic record of the Rogue Trader line. But in reality, their reasoning for that was that they were trying to look for signs of 
you know, emergence of the sort of divine essence of the emperor as such, you know, through whatever arcane divination methods they chose to use. Uh, I think I can certainly see that groups that involve um, the Sisters of Battle, if you have any Sisters of Battle in your group as a, as a, um, uh, a career type, they would suit Thorin Inquisitor as well because obviously the Sisters of Battle really came into being around uh, the... Uh, uh, the, the, the Age of Apostasy. Yeah, they, they um, pretty much are the agents of Thor. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. After they turned on Jörg Vandir, pretty much that was... You know, they, 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 they realised that they'd been deceived by the false saint and that, you know, Sebastian Thor was, in reality, the you know the, the true saint of the Emperor as such. And so, uh, yeah, given that this sort of origin come at that time, I can sort of see that the belief would have ingrained itself quite heavily into their, their own doctrines and teaching as well. Yeah. Um, yeah, overall, I, th- I think it's probably one of the easy ones to get into because it's it's a believable belief set. Um, it, you can, it's compatible where I think multiple people that have different variations on that same belief could still integrate with each other, could still work together despite the fact they've got some very... I mean, a, a person who thinks that the Emperor's body is just a husk and a person who thinks the Emperor's body still contains some divine power, if they're not interfacing with the Emperor's body, which they're not going to be in a regular Dark Heresy game, then those two things are not really... Yeah, it's more of a theological discussion than anything else. They're they're not caused to come to blows, you know, despite the fact that theological discussions have probably caused more more violent affairs in 40k than... Than anything else, yeah. (laughs) Exactly right, yeah. Um, Yeah, it's one of the more interesting ones. It's less about how the Inquisition operates. Like, a lot of the other ones are a lot more sort of, this is how we need to focus the work of the Inquisition. These people are more sort of like, we're going to do what we do anyway. We are going to protect the galaxy because that's what the Emperor would want. But while we do that, we must remain ever vigilant for, you know, the signs that we need to see and identify and respond to of, you know, protecting, you know, those shards of greatness as such. Uh, And, as I mentioned before, if you want to sort of start mixing ideals, put together the the Isvanians sort of belief that growth only comes through adversity with Thorians and suddenly you've got people out there who actively look for Imperial Saints so just so they can kill them to ensure that the divine essence of the Emperor is freed and has a greater chance of finding its way wholly back together again. Yeah. Yeah, which is creepy in itself. <laughs> but uh, yeah, we'll cover off more of the factions in future episodes. Hopefully this is something that you might enjoy and, and get a bit out of anyway. So yeah. let's move on to closing out the show. Okay. All astropaths in the quiet chamber. Message incoming. Actually, Mike, I should also point out, given that I was mentioning Mass Effect's N7 the other day, there is actually a alien in Mass Effect 1 called the Thorian. The Thorian. That's right, yeah. It's not, not at all anything like Sebastian Thor. It's completely different, but you'd know that if you actually played the game I bought you for your birthday years ago. Just saying. Anyway. Just saying. <laughs> That's it. Uh, okay, so uh, at this point in the show, we normally cover off any sort of feedback we've had from people, reviews and questions and such. I did get one just after we record the last show that I need to mention here. So uh, I got contacted via, uh, via Facebook by uh, Lee Beat. And uh, Lee has asked me to, to do a shout out on the show to the Beat family of Birmingham, UK, who all listen to the show. So, um, yeah, th- thanks so much for listening to the whole Beat family. And, uh, Thank you very much. Glad you enjoy the show. Uh, if you, like Lee, want to contact us, there's many ways you can do that. Our website is www.grimdartpodcast.com. Our Facebook page is facebook.com slash grimdartpodcast. Our Google Plus page is plus.google.com slash plus sign grimdartpodcast. 
Uh, we tweet through at grimdartpodcast, and you can email us at show at grimdartpodcast.com. Uh, coming up will be episode 77, which is a Rogue Trader episode. Originally, I put down we're going to talk about our own Rogue Trader group, but I realized there are actually still systems of Rogue Trader we haven't covered off. So, for example, we covered off the uh, the colony system. We haven't covered the world building system yet. So we will pick one of those topics to discuss for the main uh, system discussion. We're also talking about the Dauntless class, Light Cruiser, which is probably one of the, the favorites in the main book. And uh, we still have to work out what our review and general discussion is, but we'll have something by the next episode. Uh, I've got to travel again next week. I'm going overseas, but should be ready to get back together in about two weeks' time. Oh, I should also point out, Mike, that we've just passed our third birthday. Yes. Yeah, because I, I know this because my, my second son was born just after our first show was recorded, and he turned three this week. Ah. So, uh, yeah, we, 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 we didn't note it on the day, but we have now been podcasting for three, three years. years. That's it. So. Okay. And I still don't like it yet. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Thanks for coming along, Mike. Thanks for taking part. Thank you all for listening. Thank you, everyone. And we will catch you next time. This podcast is not endorsed by or again with Games Workshop or Fantasy Flight Games. Warhammer 40,000, Dark Heresy, Rogue Trader, Death Watch, Black Crusade, Only War, Eternal Crusade, and all associated properties are trademark and or copyright of Games Workshop Limited. Fantasy Flight Games is a trademark of Fantasy Flight Publishing Inc. All other materials are trademark and or copyright of their respective owners. All original content is copyright of the Grimdark Podcast. All rights are reserved by their respective owners. Our theme music comes from Mibio's Music Alley. Music.mibio.com.